Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Years before Eliezer Yudkowsky began writing Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, he wrote several sequences of essays at lesswrong.com. Personally, I find his writings to have one of the highest insights-to-word-count ratios of any essayist currently writing. Today, I will be reading two of those essays. Next week, we will return to fiction. Expecting Short Inferential Distances by Eliezer Yudkowsky, October 2007 Homo sapiens' Environment of Evolutionary Adaptedness, a.k.a. EEA, or Ancestral Environment, consisted of hunter-gatherer bands of at most 200 people, with no writing. All inherited knowledge was passed down by speech and memory. In a world like that, all background knowledge is universal knowledge. All information not strictly private is public, period. In the ancestral environment, you are unlikely to end up more than one inferential step away from anyone else. When you discovered a new oasis, you didn't have to explain to your fellow tribe members what an oasis is, or why it's good to drink water, or how to walk. Only you know where the oasis lies. This is private knowledge. But everyone has the background to understand your description of the oasis, the concepts needed to think about water. This is universal knowledge. When you explain things in an ancestral environment, you almost never have to explain your concepts. At most, you have to explain one new concept, not two or more simultaneously. In the ancestral environment, there were no abstract disciplines with vast bodies of carefully gathered evidence generalized into elegant theories transmitted by written books whose conclusions are a hundred inferential steps removed from universally shared background premises. In the ancestral environment, anyone who says something with no obvious support is a liar or an idiot. You're not likely to think, Hey! Maybe this guy has well-supported background knowledge that no one in my band has ever heard of. Because it was a reliable invariant of the ancestral environment that this didn't happen. Conversely, if you say something blatantly obvious, and the other person doesn't see it, they're the idiot. Or they're being deliberately obstinate to annoy you. And to top it off, if someone says something with no obvious support and expects you to believe it, acting all indignant when you don't, then they must be crazy. Combined with the illusion of transparency and self-anchoring, I think this explains a lot about the legendary difficulty most scientists have in communicating with a lay audience, or even communicating with scientists from other disciplines. When I observe failures of explanation, I usually see the explainer taking one step back when they need to take two or more steps back, or listeners assuming that things should be visible in one step when they take two or more steps to explain. Both sides act as if they expect very short inferential distances from universal knowledge to any new knowledge. A biologist speaking to a physicist can justify evolution by saying it is the simplest explanation. But not everyone on Earth has been inculcated with that legendary history of science, from Newton to Einstein, 
which invests the phrase simplest explanation with its awesome import, a word of power, spoken at the birth of theories and carved on their tombstones. To someone else, but it's the simplest explanation, may sound like an interesting but hardly knock-down argument. It doesn't feel like all that powerful a tool for comprehending office politics or fixing a broken car. Obviously, the biologist is infatuated with his own ideas, too arrogant to be open to alternative explanations which sound just as plausible. If it sounds plausible to me, it should sound plausible to any sane member of my band. And from the biologist's perspective, he can understand how evolution might sound a little odd at first. But when someone rejects evolution, even after the biologist explains that it's the simplest explanation, well, it's clear that non-scientists are just idiots, and there's no point in talking to them. A clear argument has to lay out an inferential pathway, starting from what the audience already knows or accepts. If you don't recurse far enough, you're just talking to yourself. If at any point you make a statement without obvious justification in arguments you've previously supported, the audience just thinks you're a cult victim. This also happens when you allow yourself to be seen visibly attaching greater weight to an argument than is justified in the eyes of the audience at that time. For example, talking as if you think simpler explanation is a knockdown argument for evolution, which it is, rather than a sorta interesting idea, which it sounds like to someone who hasn't been raised to revere Occam's razor. Oh, and you'd better not drop any hints that you think you're working a dozen inferential steps away from what the audience knows, or that you think you have special background knowledge not available to them. The audience doesn't know anything about an evolutionary psychological argument for a cognitive bias to underestimate inferential distances leading to traffic jams in communication. They'll just think you're condescending. And if you think you can explain the concept of systematically underestimated inferential distances briefly, in just a few words, I've got some sad news for you. Transhumanism as Simplified Humanism Eliezer Yudkowsky, 2007 Frank Soloway once said, quote, 99% of what Darwinian theory says about human behavior is so obviously true that we don't give Darwin credit for it. Ironically, psychoanalysis has it over Darwinism precisely because its predictions are so outlandish and its explanations are so counterintuitive that we think, is that really true? How radical! Freud's ideas are so intriguing that people are willing to pay for them, while one of the great disadvantages of Darwinism is that we feel we know it already, because, in a sense, we do. Unquote. Suppose you find an unconscious six-year-old girl lying on the train tracks of an active railroad. What, morally speaking, ought you to do in this situation? Would it be better to leave her there to get run over or to try to save her? 
How about if a 45-year-old man has a debilitating but non-fatal illness that will severely reduce his quality of life? Is it better to cure him or not cure him? Oh, and by the way, this is not a trick question. I answer that I would save them if I had the power to do so, both the six-year-old on the train tracks and the sick 45-year-old. The obvious answer isn't always the best choice, but sometimes it is. I won't be lauded as a brilliant ethicist for my judgments in these two ethical dilemmas. My answers are not surprising enough that people would pay me for them. If you go around proclaiming, what does 2 plus 2 equal? 4. You will not gain a reputation as a deep thinker. But it is still the correct answer. If a young child falls on the train tracks, it is good to save them. And if a 45-year-old suffers from a debilitating disease, it is good to cure them. If you have a logical turn of mind, you are bound to ask whether this is a special case of a general ethical principle which says, Life is good, death is bad. Health is good, sickness is bad. If so and here we enter into controversial territory, we can follow this general principle to a surprising new conclusion. If a 95-year-old is threatened by death from old age, it would be good to drag them from those train tracks, if possible. And if a 120-year-old is starting to feel slightly sickly, it would be good to restore them to full vigor, if possible. With current technology, it is not possible. But if the technology becomes available in some future year, given sufficiently advanced medical nanotechnology or such other contrivances as future minds may devise, would you judge it a good thing to save that life and stay that debility? The important thing to remember, which I think all too many people forget, is that it is not a trick question. Transhumanism is simpler, requires fewer bits to specify, because it has no special cases. If you believe professional bioethicists, people who get paid to explain ethical judgments, then the rule, life is good, death is bad, health is good, sickness is bad, holds only until some critical age, and then flips polarity. Why should it flip? Why not just keep on with life is good? It would seem that it is good to save a six-year-old girl, but bad to extend the life and health of a 150-year-old. Then at what exact age does the utility function go from positive to negative? Why? As far as a transhumanist is concerned, if you see someone in danger of dying, you should save them. If you can improve someone's health, you should. There, you're done. No special cases. You don't have to ask anyone's age. You also don't have to ask whether the remedy will only involve primitive technologies, like a stretcher to lift the six-year-old off the railroad tracks, or technologies invented less than a hundred years ago, like penicillin, which nonetheless seem ordinary because they were around when you were a kid or technologies that seem scary and sexy and futuristic, like gene therapy, because they were invented after you turned 18, 
or technologies that seem absurd and implausible and sacrilegious, like nanotech, because they haven't been invented yet. Your Ethical Dilemma report form doesn't have a line where you write down the invention year of the technology. Can you save lives? Yes? Okay, go ahead. There, you're done. Suppose a boy of nine years, who has tested at IQ 120 on the Wexler Bellevue, is threatened by a lead-heavy environment or a brain disease, which will, if unchecked, gradually reduce his IQ to 110. I reply that it is a good thing to save him from this threat. If you have a logical turn of mind, you are bound to ask whether this is a special case of a general ethical principle, saying that intelligence is precious. Now the boy's sister, as it happens, currently has an IQ of 110. If the technology were available to gradually raise her IQ to 120 without negative side effects, would you judge it good to do so? Well, of course. Why not? It's not a trick question. Either it's better to have an IQ of 110 than 120, in which case we should strive to decrease IQs of 120 to 110, or it's better to have an IQ of 120 than 110, in which case we should raise the sister's IQ if possible. As far as I can see, the obvious answer is the correct one. But, you ask, where does it end? It may seem well and good to talk about extending life and health out to 150 years, but what about 200 years, or 300 years, or 500 years, or more? What about when, in the course of properly integrating all these new life experiences and expanding one's mind accordingly over time, the equivalent of IQ must go to 140, or 180, or beyond human ranges. Where does it end? It doesn't. Why should it? Life is good. Health is good. Beauty and happiness and fun and laughter and challenge and learning are good. This does not change for arbitrarily large amounts of life and beauty. If there were an upper bound, it would be a special case, and that would be inelegant. Ultimate physical limits may or may not permit a lifespan of at least length X for some X, just as the medical technology of a particular century may or may not permit it. But physical limitations are questions of simple fact, to be settled strictly by experiment. Transhumanism, as a moral philosophy, deals only with the question of whether a healthy lifespan of length X is desirable if it is physically possible. Transhumanism answers yes for all X. Because, you see, it's not a trick question. So that is transhumanism, loving life without special exceptions and without upper bound. Can transhumanism really be that simple? Doesn't that make the philosophy trivial if it has no extra ingredients, just common sense? Yes, in the same way that the scientific method is nothing but common sense. Then why have a complicated special name like transhumanism? 
for the same reason that scientific method or secular humanism have complicated special names. If you take common sense and rigorously apply it through multiple inferential steps to areas outside everyday experience, successfully avoiding many possible distractions and tempting mistakes along the way, then it often ends up as a minority position, and people give it a special name. But a moral philosophy should not have special ingredients. The purpose of a moral philosophy is not to look delightfully strange and counterintuitive, or to provide employment to bioethicists. The purpose is to guide our choices toward life, health, beauty, happiness, fun, laughter, challenge, and learning. If the judgments are simple, that is no black mark against them. Morality doesn't always have to be complicated. There is nothing in transhumanism but the same common sense that underlies standard humanism, rigorously applied to cases outside our modern-day experience. A million-year lifespan? If it's possible, why not? The prospect may seem very foreign and strange relative to our current everyday experiences. It may create a sensation of future shock. And yet... Is life a bad thing? Could the moral question really be just that simple? Yes. Thank you for listening. I plan to read a few more essays throughout the coming months interspersed with the rationalist fiction. As always, you can always read many more of Yudkowsky's writings at lesswrong.com. The music used is the intro and outro to Queensryche's Empire album. Come back in two weeks for a new short story, Earth Thick. <laughs>